0: I want want to give us some very quick backstory here on the, the nation of Israel. So much of what makes up the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is the story of God's chosen people, Israel. And one of the distinct ways Israel is referred to in the Bible, they are referred to as a tree, or more specifically, a vine. Israel is the vine of God's planting, his special chosen, called out people, And yet whenever the Bible refers to to Israel as the vine, it's actually given in a negative sense. It's referred to in a spirit of judgment because the vine that was Israel was actually bearing bad fruit, sometimes no fruit at all. God's people, uh, if you read through the scripture, they were rebellious, they were idolatrous, they were often faithless, like a tree that produces only dead and barren branches a tree that has not served its purpose. And in fact, y'all, you don't turn there, but in Matthew 21, one of the very confusing stories that, uh, that we see in the ministry of Jesus, one day he sees a fig tree that has no fruit on it, and he curses it, and the tree withers. And of course, his disciples are confused, and we might be confused. What a strange thing to do. But that was actually a parable being acted out in real time. This is what Israel had become a vine that has not uh, bore fruit for God, and therefore God's judgment was rightly upon them. Now I tell you that because it, I think it helps us to, to get a, a deeper sense of what makes John 15 so wonderful. Jesus is with his disciples, now only the 11. Judas has made up his mind uh, through the influence of the devil, he's going to betray Jesus, and he's left. So Jesus is left now with the 11 disciples right on the cusp of his betrayal and arrest and crucifixion. What Jesus is saying here are effectively his parting words. And so we have the privilege this morning of leaning in with the 11 disciples as Jesus speaks with them, and he gives us one of his all-time great illustrations. John 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Let's stop here for just a second. This is, there are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is the seventh and final one. I am the true vine. And given the backstory we just discussed, what Jesus is communicating here is everything Israel failed to be, Jesus fulfills. He is the true vine of God's planting, the one sent to earth from heaven who has come to bear the perfect fruit fruit of righteousness. And so already in the first verse here in John 15, we get a a contrast. We have a a perspective here of, of, okay, here's what we are not, both Israel and us. We are sinful. We are failures. We have not uh, been fruitful for God's glory. And then by contrast, we see what Jesus is in all his holiness and his goodness. He's the true vine we don't stop there. Because if we did, all we would have is a reason for despair, that Jesus is something that we could never be, right? And of course that's true, but Jesus isn't saying this to pit himself against us, as if to say he's, he's the real deal and we're not. Jesus is showing his relationship to us. Y'all, here in a minute we're going to see these very words that I share with our kids. Jesus is going to say, I am the vine, you are the branches. And that's a beautiful picture of for us what it means to be a Christian. Branches are born from the vine. Branches are given life by the vine. All of a branch's life and fruitfulness comes from the vine. And so when Jesus says he is the true vine, this is the picture we're meant to see He's not just a better version of us. He is the divine Son of God who gives life to us who are otherwise dead. He is the Son of God able to save us to the uttermost by giving His life to us and for us. And we receive life from Him now as a gift of grace so that we are no longer a dead vine unto ourselves, but we are now living branches incorporated in, birthed from the true vine. We receive life because God has loved us. And so with that in mind, we have a foundation for how Jesus is going to expand on this illustration, on this metaphor here, right? He is the true vine. The father is the gardener, the vine dresser. Now look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the Father, takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, Jesus is making a careful distinction here. There are fruitless branches that do not abide in the vine, and the Father takes them away. We're going to look at that a little more deeply in verse 6 when we get there. But y'all, the immediate thought, when Jesus says there are, are vines or are branches that don't bear fruit, the Father takes them away, the very first immediate thought we should have is Judas Iscariot. Right? In the context, Judas has just walked out the door. He has left the Last Supper to betray Jesus. Back in chapter 13, Jesus looked at the 12 disciples, Judas included, and he said to them, Not all of you are clean. Not all of you are clean. Now though, he looks at the 11 who remain in chapter 15 and he says, you are clean. Not because you're all better than Judas necessarily, but you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Judas is the fruitless branch that has been taken away, but you are the true branches because you belong to me by faith in a way that Judas never did. Now, I want to draw us back to something. I don't want us to get lost in, the, in the, you know, the, the weeds there, but something Jesus says that almost gets lost in the mix, something that I almost was tempted to, to pass over and move on in preparation for this message, and yet it's so essential for the Christian life. We have to see it. It's in the middle of verse 2. This is a promise. Listen to the promise. Jesus says, Every branch that bears fruit, he, the Father, prunes So that it may bear more fruit. Now I don't I don't know anything about anything, okay, but I know what pruning is. Pruning involves the cutting away of a branch or of a plant, right? And if you're an outsider, if you don't understand, if you don't, you know, know know what the the process involves, it actually seems very destructive and violent and foolish. Why in the world would anybody cut away from what is otherwise a healthy and living plant. But the reason for pruning becomes obvious later on, when there's greater fruitfulness that comes as a result. It's a a painful pruning, but it promotes greater flourishing. And Jesus says, this is what God does for Christians. In order to make us more fruitful, in order to make us more like Jesus, God patiently and lovingly removes things from our lives that stand in the way. And, y'all, if, you're, if, you're, if you want a cross-reference for this, uh, you can look into Hebrews chapter 12. That's the best place, I think, for a, a cross-reference where God disciplines us, we're told, for our good. He disciplines us so that we may share in his holiness. It seems not to be joyful in the moment, but sorrowful, like all discipline does. But in the end, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what Hebrews says. And so, y'all, this is a a, a tough pill maybe for us to swallow. The thought of God's pruning or his discipline, because for me at least, maybe for, for most of us, there's this sense in which, wait, if God loves me, then he would never cause me any pain or discomfort. Or maybe we could even go a step further and say, if God loves me, he would just accept me as I am and would not try to change me, right? Because that's more fitting of our modern view of love. Now, it is true, of course, that when God saves us, he doesn't demand that we obey him up front in order to be saved. We don't have to prove ourselves in order to be accepted. We are accepted on the basis of Christ's righteousness, not our own But once we are born again, once we've been rescued from our sin, Jesus says God goes to work in us. He goes to work. And I want to encourage us on this point, y'all. When we feel conviction over our selfishness or our judgmental spirit or our desire for gossip, you, you can fill in your own specific sin blanks here. When we feel the sting of guilt, Concerning our own sinful choices, that is not evidence of God turning his back on you. That's evidence of God's pruning work. His fatherly discipline to expose our sin so that God might cut it away and make us more fruitful. And you know, it doesn't even have to be obvious obvious. And harmful sins, it doesn't have to be the big stuff that we know is wrong. It could just be anything in your life, any little habit, perhaps, that might stand in the way of you and me bringing glory to God. The Lord wants it out. He wants to cut it away. And it might be very painful, of course. It might seem like a loss in the process because something's being taken from me, but God only does it because he loves us because he desires great fruitfulness in our lives. And so, y'all, I'll say this, because I need to hear it, that one of the signs of a maturing Christian is that we actually begin to desire and to ask for God's pruning and discipline in our lives, rather than run from it, rather than feeling sorry for ourselves over it. We actually welcome it, because we know what he's doing and we desire what He desires. And so, y'all, this is my encouragement, again, for me, for us, this ought to become for us a regular prayer request. Lord, will you discipline me for my good that I may share in your holiness? Father, will you prune away anything in my life that does not glorify you? Because that's all I really want. That's 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 a thing to pray right there. It might be scary for us to pray, because we know it may hurt. But in the end, God in his love glorifies himself by making us fruitful. So we're we're looking, Jesus gives us, in a sense, almost like the negative view of Christian growth, the cutting away required for it. But then he follows that up with what we could call the positive side in verse 4. So look at verse 4 at this wonderful command. Jesus says, abide in me. That's one, kids. There you go. Did you catch that one? Abide in me. That's two and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, twice we see this, twice Jesus says, to abide in him, and each time he attaches a promise to it. He says, and I abide in you. This is not a one-way transaction here. This is mutual. Abide in me, and I, am, and I abide in you. So how Jesus abides in us or remains in us, y'all, it's primarily through the indwelling of the Spirit. He teaches a lot on that in John. We'll get to that in the coming weeks to abide in his word, and we'll see that again here in a moment. Uh, Aaron LaRue preached for us a couple of weeks ago, and he preached on this wonderful text. Jesus promised, I will not leave you as orphans, as spiritual orphans. When he dies and rises again, he has no intention of leaving us to ourselves. He says, I will come to you, and the Spirit will dwell with you. And so we can take comfort in this. When Jesus says he abides in us, he is the vine, capital V, that cannot fail us. The vine is perfect and sure and life-giving. And that's why the branch must remain in the vine. The vine is not the problem. The vine is just fine. We can trust him. But the branch cannot live apart from the vine. And see, that's the point. And that's really the point in in verse 6. Look at verse 6 for a second here. Jesus says, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Apart from Christ, we remain dead in our sins. Apart from Christ, we have no life in God. And therefore, we remain under God's righteous judgment. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point, but it needs to be said that our natural human assumption, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, it's always been this way. The natural assumption we all have is I can have life just fine without God. I can cheat the system. I can end up just as good, if not better, than if I had trusted and submitted to God in the first place. Or to use Jesus' language, I can exist as a lone branch independent of anything else, severed from the Lord, and I can still have a perfectly good and happy existence. I can still have it all. Now, obviously, the Bible tells us that this is wrong. Jesus says it right here. I think human history tells us it's wrong. There is no life, certainly not the life, that we most require. Life from God. It simply doesn't exist apart from Christ. Now, I said I wouldn't belabor that, right? But that's that's the point of verse 6. There are branches severed from Christ, and therefore they are dried up. They have no life in themselves, only judgment. But let's circle back to the main point for us, right? Jesus is speaking to his disciples, those who have faith in him. And so these are vibrant branches attached to the vine, right? In Christ we have life. And because we have life in the vine, it's a life that's meant to be fruitful, right? It's a life that's meant to produce something. So look again at verse 5. When Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Y'all the, now, it's, I would caution us from the temptation to narrow the definition of fruit down. I think it's intentionally vague here. The fruit that that, that God desires to produce in our life, that's any quality of life that glorifies him. Any quality of life that's given to us and commanded in the scripture. So for example, when, when Paul writes to the Galatians, and he gives them that famous list of what he calls the fruit of the spirit, the things that God's spirit divinely produces in those who belong to him. Paul gives us nine things, right? Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's not an exhaustive list. Now, that's not every possible thing that God produces in us, but it is representative that if we abide in Christ and he in us, the qualities that Jesus embodies will be imparted to us, and we will grow in these very same things, the fruit of the Spirit. And so if we're talking about Christian growth here, we need to be sober-minded about how we approach it. What does it look like to be fruitful? What needs to change about even how we think of ourselves in order to be fruitful? Y'all, my, Here's my suspicion, okay? And, and if, I, if, I don't, if I'm not speaking of you, I'm only speaking generally here, but I, I see two categories of people so often in the church. And maybe you're one of these two categories or somewhere close enough. Uh, Some of us, we see ourselves as generally good Christians. Sure, I have faults, but I'm pretty good overall. I'm a nice guy. I do the right things. I keep my nose clean. And so when I think about Christian growth, I'm really thinking most about my own personal need for improvement. Uh, as if, you know, my life is pretty well set as it is. I just I just am in need of some tinkering. And y'all, to be, to be honest, this is how I tend to think about myself. I like to think that I'm doing mostly okay. I just need a little polishing up. But y'all, if that's you and if that's me, we are going to woefully underestimate our desperate need to abide in Christ. We don't see ourselves as needing Jesus all that much. We only need His help periodically for some of the rough edges. But in the end, I don't carry with me this daily desperation to remain in the vine. Because frankly, I just don't think I need Him that badly. I'm doing okay. Is that you? And yet Jesus looks us in the eye through this Scripture, and He says it with no no confusion... He says, apart from me, you can do most things. Apart from me, you can get by. Now, what does he say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. You cannot please God one millimeter apart from the inner working grace of Jesus Christ. Unless we abide in him We have nothing good to show for ourselves. We are not doing okay. Now, on the other side, there might be some of us, we don't feel that great about ourselves, honestly. We we live in a constant state of deficiency, always burdened with a sense of guilt and shame. I never feel like God is all that pleased with me. I'm always trying to climb a ladder that I can never see the top. And when we say the fruit of the Spirit, like from Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, we give that list. Some of us will look at a list like that and wonder, am I really even a Christian at all? Because I know how far short I fall of doing what's right and being who I ought to be. Some of you know that feeling because that's you. And in that case, it's possible that you are severely underestimating the reality that Jesus abides in you. See, some of us, we need to come to to terms with the fact that we must abide in Christ or there's nothing good in me. Some of us, we need to come to terms with the fact that Christ abides in us and that our deep sense of failure and shame and guilt or whatever it may be, if by faith we are united with Christ, then he indeed abides in us and is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Because his love for you does not depend on your religious performance. He loved you while you were yet a sinner and died for you right there. If you feel like you can never please God, you need to be reminded that by his grace, he has made himself yours. And it does not depend on your doing to earn it. Y'all, this is a mutual relationship. Abide in me, Jesus says, as I abide in you, and therefore you will bear much fruit. Jesus is our single greatest need in this world and for all eternity. And he has gladly opened himself up to us fully. And so abide in me is a command, yes, but it's also a glorious invitation. Jesus has opened up his heart to us here. Y'all, how silly would it seem for us to read a scripture like this and imagine that Jesus is saying all of this with his fingers wrapped around our necks saying, abide in me. That makes no sense, right? How, How strange. No, Jesus is not trying to squeeze anything out of you here. He's offering himself to you to produce life in you. This is an amazing invitation, and it's mutual. You in me, and I in you. And so, y'all, I want to spend our our final few moments here as we round the corner. Let's reflect a little bit on some of the specifics as to how this actually happens. How do we actually do it? How do we we abide? How do we bear fruit? Look at verse 7 here. We're going to read verses 7 through 11 Before we conclude, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now I realize I haven't really followed up on our kids' sermon very much. You know, kids, when I talked about what it means to abide in Christ, it's kind of a tricky word, maybe because it's not something that we can do on a checklist, right? To remain in Christ, to abide in Christ, means that as we draw near to Him day by day, as we deepen in our trust and our dependence on Him, we see Jesus as our only source of real life, as our only real hope, And therefore, day by day, even moment by moment, to abide in Christ means that our desire is for Jesus. He doesn't just supply us with all that we need for life and for godliness. Yes, He does. But we want Him all the more because we see in Him everything that is good and perfect and precious and lovely. We want to know Jesus. We want to honor Him and glorify Him. We want to abide in Him. And so, y'all, as we, as we round the corner here, we recognize, yes, there is something for us to do. This is a command. Abide is an active verb. You, can't, you don't just wake up and roll out of bed abiding in Christ every morning. And so Jesus, thankfully, gives us some very specific ways in which we are meant to remain in him and draw from his life. Uh, two, two things real quick as we close. Verse 7 Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then again in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, both of those verses are uh, related to the words of Jesus. right? His words abiding in us, verse 7, and then his word working itself out in our lives, obedience to his word. So you could say that The word is working in, and then the word is working out. So when Jesus says, my words abide in you, what he means, I think, is this, that you and I are nourished by his words in the same way that we're nourished physically by food and drink. When Paul spoke to Timothy about what it means to be a good servant, he says a good servant of the Lord Jesus is constantly nourished. On the words of the faith and so y'all when we read our Bibles we're not doing it simply as a good Christian discipline I know I should I know I should I know I should so many of us approach the Bible just that way and it feels crushing especially when we miss a day right but we don't approach the Bible that way we approach the Bible for what it is the Word of God is the very nutriment of our spiritual life it's not just like any other book full of information and commands It's the very Word of God. When Jesus, back in John 6, when Jesus said, the Spirit alone gives life, the flesh profits nothing, He then said, the very words I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. There is life in the Word of God as the Spirit does its work in our lives. And so when Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 3, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Y'all, that means so much more than just try to read your Bible every day. It means let the Bible, let the Word of God be saturated down deep so that it becomes our life because there's life to be found in the nourishment of Jesus' words. And of course, if we're nourished on the words of Jesus, then we will be fruitful for Jesus because it's the operating reality deep down in our hearts. And of course, so what flows from that, if the word of Christ abides in us, then naturally we will become obedient to Christ outwardly. The word works in and the word works out. Uh, Loving obedience. I usually, when I talk about obedience, I try to put loving before obedience because it needs to be said for us that our obedience to Christ is not mere duty. It's not something we do out of fear because I don't want God to hurt me or be displeased with me. We don't obey God for that reason. I hope we don't. We shouldn't. Neither do we obey God out of legalism. If I do these things, I'll set myself apart. God will accept me or I can show myself better than others. No. We lovingly obey. If you go back to John 14, Jesus says it like six times in John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And this is Jesus telling us how to live because that's how he lived. If you see it in your scripture again in verse 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus is telling us to live like he lives. He was always lovingly obeying the Father. The proof of Jesus' connection to the Father was in his constant loving obedience. And if you obey me, Jesus says, you will abide in my love. Y'all, the pulsing heart of our obedience to Christ is love for him, having received love from him. It's not fear. It's not legalism. It's love. And so here's the command. If you want to deepen in Christ, if you want to grow in him, and if you want to bear fruit for God's glory joyfully soak in his word, and lovingly walk in his commands. And if you are a branch attached to the vine that is Jesus, Jesus promises to give us everything we need to do just that. Now, if, you are, if you're a natural-born legalist like me, y'all, this is where I lean, okay? We have to have a very clear statement as we close. When Jesus says, abide in me, when Jesus says, obey me, He's constantly speaking the language of relationship here. This is relational language, not transactional. Meaning you cannot abide in Christ by keeping a checklist on your fridge. It just doesn't work that way. You can't abide in Christ by by diligently following all the rules or doing your best. No. Y'all, this is life. That we receive from God. This is the kind of life that comes only as we know a person, not a list of commands, not a set of rules or boundaries to keep. Jesus says, Abide in me. He's a person, He's the divine Son of God who has made Himself known to us. And so, y'all, I just encourage us as we go. Jesus says, Abide in me multiple times, but there's a parallel command and invitation. It means the very same thing. He also says, abide in my love. And it's the same thing. Abide in me, abide in my love. Because those are one and the same. To know Christ is to know his love. And then he tops it off as if that wasn't enough. In verse 11, he says, I say all of this so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be made full. Y'all, we're being downright spoiled here. Divine acceptance, divine love and joy, intimate and eternal relationship with God, he withholds nothing from us. As branches born of the vine, he has made us children of God as a gift of his grace and he has offered himself fully to us, freely to us, He is the source of all life and joy because he is gracious and good to sinners. And y'all, as as rotten and rough-edged as we are, starting with me, Jesus actually says, you stick with me, you remain in me, and you'll bear much fruit. God will be abundantly pleased with the good things I'll do in your life. This is outrageous, that we would be loved like this. May the fruit of the branches reflect the grace flowing into us and flowing out of us, because we, by faith, are attached to the true vine, the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning for us that you would rescue us out of the false ways we look at ourselves. For those of us, Lord, who think we're doing just fine, and certainly we're Christians and we go to church, we're in church right now. We're okay. And yet, Lord, we have somehow lost our deep and true sense of what we are and how how truly, how desperately we need you, Jesus, moment by moment, ounce by ounce. Everything, Lord, that we require must come from the vine. It must come from you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Help us to see ourselves in the right way this morning. And maybe for those of us who who have the kind of the opposite problem, we are so low down, beaten down, so sure that, Lord, you turn up your nose at us because we are foul and unworthy. That we would see in Jesus Christ arms spread out open nailed down to a cross for us. Loving us before we ever did anything good or bad. Loving us and accepting us because of your grace, Father, not because of our worthiness. Father, as we abide in Christ this morning and as He abides in us, would You give us such a a precious picture of a fruitful vine with billions of branches. Billions. A vine filled with good fruit because of the awesome love and grace of the true vine Jesus who gives us life and all good things. Father, would you give us this morning faith to see and to receive this amazing gift, this amazing relationship that we could not earn and now we cannot lose. Thank you, Lord that you abide in us and you hold us fast. Lord, let us live as fruitful, joyful, dependent branches. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.